0: Beloved brands know customer relationships are everything. That's why over 130,000 trust Clavio to power smarter digital relationships across their websites, emails, SMS, and reviews. And now, there's Clavio AI, your guide to smarter insights, decisions, work, and results. Brands like Everyman Jack trust Clavio AI to personalize product recommendations that keep customers coming back. Discover Clavio AI at klaviyo.com. box. That's K L A V I Y O dot com backslash box.
1: Support for the show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alternatives including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com slash Vox. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus.
2: I forgot how annoying affirmative action discourse is. I'm actually, I was doing all this reading and then I was just like, wow, I'm just annoyed. Yeah, (laughs) I'm like so annoyed. It's the most annoying discourse on the planet.
3: Channel that. (laughs) Oh, don't worry. It's
0: just a massive
2: amount of (laughs) irritation. (laughs) Just like about to vibe out of my body for the next 90 minutes or however long this is.
3: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm joined today by my regular co-host, Jerusalem Demsis. Hello. And Dara Lind. Hello. And we are talking about the imminent end of affirmative action in college admissions. So as of this recording, the Supreme Court recently agreed to hear challenges to racial preferences and admissions at both Harvard, which is a private university, and the University of North Carolina, which is a public university. The last time the court took on the issue in 2016, votes from Anthony Kennedy and Ruth Bader Ginsburg kept affirmative action alive in some form. Since then, both Anthony Kennedy and Ruth Bader Ginsburg have been replaced by solid conservative justices. And so the court's choice to take this case indicates that the new conservative majority maybe wants to do away with affirmative action completely. John Roberts, the chief justice, uh, very early in his tenure as a justice, uh, wrote in a decision, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And it seems like after 15 odd years, he might be in a position to make that uh, view a reality. So there's a lot to dig into here, both in terms of the history of affirmative action and like race in America, which is several thousand podcasts. Uh, but also in the sort of admissions data from Harvard, which has all become public due to this lawsuit. But uh, Jerusalem and Dara, I wanted to sort of kick it to you and see what you make of the situation. Just
2: a little bit on the specifics of the Harvard case, because, like, I think I'm probably more favorable to affirmative action than a lot of um, people, a lot of other journalists. The specifics of the Harvard case are, like, pretty bad. (laughs) It's like, one of the things that you're seeing is, like, there's a personal score that gets cobbled together um, based on interviews, essays, teacher recommendations. It's, like, subjective. And it's pretty clear that systematically Harvard is rating Asian applicants lower than other applicants on these stores. And they're insisting that it's not racist, but it's, like, there's not providing any other reason reasoning for why systematically they're being given lower scores, which, you know, is is pretty textbook systemic racism. And then also William Fitzsimmons, and I'm getting this from a column by written by Jay Caspian Kang at The New York Times, who's done a lot of really great reporting on this. Uh, William Fitzsimmons, who was the dean of Harvard Missions for a long time, he was asked to explain why Asian spu- students from sparse uh, country, like rural areas, uh, had to score so much higher on the SAT than white students. And he said, quote, there are people who, let's say, for example, have only lived in the sparse country state for a year or two, insinuating that like Asians are Asian first and not like Nebraskans or Iowans or anything like that, um, which is also that
4: that there's a population of Asian-American families trying to game the system, which like plays into lots of bad stereotypes and is just not really borne out by the evidence at all.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and it's 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 pretty bad to to say that, especially without any kind of evidence that there are not also white people who also moved to Nebraska <laughs> or to Iowa or other things like that. And then on top of that, too, is that like there's documents that are shown that Harvard only considered your ethnicity um, if you like wrote about it or talked about it excessively and, and were like uh, I guess like unleashed your trauma and the way that it influenced your life upon Harvard. Um, and that's like pretty bad because obviously it doesn't really you know it's it's pretty reductive of an individual to ask them to do that and obviously warps people's perceptions of whether or not they're getting in based on um, the merits of application. But Anyway, so it's pretty clear that a lot of bad stuff is happening in the Harvard admissions office, and and that is um, reflected in the individual case. But um, I think it's really interesting, and I'm sure it's going to happen in this conversation a lot, is just that we flip between the individual harms that are being experienced by people who have worked really hard and want to get into a good school and are seeing their race stand in the way of that. And in, in the case of these, uh, a lot of these Asian-American students, and then also like this larger broader societal question, which is how do we want to allocate slots at elite universities, given that they have a ton of power and a ton of leverage and a ton of say over who ends up leading the country politically in our media, in our corporate boards and things like that. And so I think that that's really hard because from the specific case that we're looking at right now, it seems pretty obvious that Harvard should not be saying that like Asian students are are rated lower on their personalities or something about their interviews systematically. So yeah, I think I think that the particulars are pretty bad here.
4: Yeah, I mean this is a critique that has been in most of the particulars pretty identical between Asian Americans in the 21st century and Jews in the 20th where, you know, once you have an upwardly mobile population that is able to, you know, compete with the established dominant class on things like GPA or SAT scores, then you start bringing in these soft personality factors that Happen to discriminate against the out group and lead to the narrative that, like, you know, these aren't really well-rounded kids; that they're just trying to get into Ivy League schools. So it's it's worth contextualizing historically with that parallel because the way that the argument actually takes place often in the 21st century is that Asian students are being disadvantaged by affirmative action, and that this is somehow the inevitable consequence of trying to expand access for you know, what are called underrepresented minorities or like, you know, Black, Latino and Native Indigenous students, that this is somehow the reason that Asian students are being discriminated against. And thank heavens, the Harvard data, like, actually does again give us the the teeth here that like, it's, it does continue to be white students who are most advantaged by this. But the kind of, Way that this is being used in the litigation is almost certainly going to end up getting rid of the considering on the basis of race basis of actions. It's just not clear whether that's actually going to fix the stated problem.
3: Yeah, so to to back up for a second, since I think people might not be as in in the weeds of some of this these stats as Dara is. There's this huge sort of debate between two economists hired by Harvard and by the plaintiffs, respectively, to crunch the data on this. So David Card, who has since won a Nobel Prize in economics, was was hired by Harvard. Peter Arsidiacono was hired by the sort of anti-affirmative action people. And so Arsidiacono's argument was that if you look at the data, it's pretty clear there's a huge disadvantage for Asian Americans specifically, that as you'd expect in a affirmative action system, uh, Black and Hispanic applicants do better than white applicants, but Asian applicants do a whole lot worse. And Card, in defending Harvard, made what I think is a fairly squirrely argument. Um, And like, I'm loathe to go up against a Nobel laureate in economics, but it seems to like rather obviously miss the point, which is he concedes that based on academic ratings like SATs and GPAs and and whatnot, Asian applicants are are much less likely to be admitted. But he argues that there are also personal ratings of, of people's personal qualities, extracurricular activities, athletic abilities, and that you have to incorporate that as well. I look at that and kind of see him controlling for the way that Asian Americans are discriminated against. Yes,
4: that's, that's, that's um, exactly. it's begging the question.
3: <laughs> yeah, Um, that that it seems like what's happening is that Harvard admissions people like find Asian Americans boring and like rate that on their application pages. And this results in a group with really high test scores and GPAs not getting a commensurate share of spots. But I think the, the other disturbing thing about this is like, in an ideal world, I would want to be able to have a conversation about discrimination against Asian Americans in Ivy League schools, which does seem like, if not equal in scale, then similar in kind to when Ivy League schools try to exclude Jewish applicants and set quotas for them. I would like to be able to have a conversation about that separate from the question of how do you get more Black and, and Hispanic and Native American students into these institutions, but the institutions themselves seem to be treating this as like an absolute trade-off. There were some interesting numbers from the lawsuit that found that if you got rid of affirmative action and you got rid of legacy and athlete preference, which is one of the main ways that white applicants are disproportionately advantaged at schools like Harvard, even if you got rid of that and you got rid of racial affirmative action, the white share of Harvard would go up. The Asian share would go up dramatically. And they would both be pulling from from black and hispanic students. So just intuitively that seems really bad at an institution that is it will probably continue to be like a training ground for american elites and it raises questions about like what can we do to stop that without a disadvantaging asian american students the way they've been disadvantaged or b running into an ordinary supreme court that is not going to allow any form of positive discrimination.
2: I think one of the weird things about this entire discourse, too, and I agree with you, Dylan, about like the conflation of this being one of the most frustrating parts of it. Because if you were to say, like, how do we ensure that elite institutions are adequately representative of the population, the admissions processes at Harvard University are not is not at the top of my list. Um, sure. <laughs> but I think the one of the thing, the reason why I um, it's this entire discourse is really frustrating to me is because of like how rarely we ever hear um, this sort of posture about, you know, kind of undeserving black and brown students, at these elite institutions coming up when we talk about when when we rarely ever talk about the affirmative action that exists for men at colleges across the entire country, which is something that has like been known since like for like my entire life. Everyone knew that like there were more that girls are better at school, better at scoring, um, high, getting higher ICT scores, getting better grades. This is just a thing that everyone has been aware of and that boys are able to get into these programs because affirmative action is But it's never like called that. It's just called like leadership qualities or (laughs) charisma or, you know, balancing because you want to I mean, one person I remember there was like some uh, article recently where they were talking about how they wanted to have a balanced dating pool, which I mean, I guess like,
4: sure. (laughs) That's super (laughs) super heteronormative. Like, have you met Gen Z? You can't assume, you can't, like, it's going to take much more complicated math to get a balanced dating pool there because you can't just get gender parity.
3: Also, have you met someone who went to Smith or Wellesley? <laughs> I assure you that sex happens.
2: <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I just think also, like, I mean, last year the Wall Street Journal did a story that, like, touched on this question, but the perspective of it was, like, so different from how affirmative action stories are written, and it was just about like, how is society failing men that there is this dramatic social problem where they are systematically scoring worse than women, both before they get to college and when they're at college, um, just not doing as well in school. And like Jennifer Della Hunty who was uh, the admissions office head at Kenyon and also Lewis and Clark, which are very highly selective private institutions, um, said that like absolutely there's a thumb on the scale for boys and that, Tacit affirmative action for boys has become, quote, higher education's dirty little secret. And I just think it's just kind of interesting to me because this whole discourse is both ostensibly about, you know, who deserves to be at Harvard and also just seems to me about people think and have thought for a long time that there's this idea of, like, undeserving black and brown people at these institutions and that they are necessarily taking away from other people. And just, like, you know, I went to a really high, highly selective, like, high school, and I remember, uh, you know, two or three, like, black women who were, like, extremely good, top of our class, doing really well, ended up getting into these really prestigious universities like Yale and Columbia and Ivy League institutions. And, like, these people probably would have got in regardless of whether or not there was affirmative action. They had like some of the highest grades in the class and were brilliant. And, uh, you know, the the ire that was directed at them for getting into Mm -hmm. these institutions was just astonishing to me because like I went to a really progressive school in like the suburbs of Maryland. And it was one of those things where it's just like, you know, the people who are being helped in these situations are often high income, often, you know, immigrants or biracial black women who are the ones who are getting to be the beneficiaries of affirmative action. Um, And also they're like often... These are the people who would get in anyway and yet are also dealing with the worst harms of it, which are that their people do not believe they deserve to be there. And so it's a thing where it's just like all of this stuff is wrapped up in such a weird way around people's feelings about race in America and is not actually about the specific question that the Supreme Court is dealing with, which is just like, should you be racist against Asians, which the answer is obviously no. But that's not the broader societal conversation that anyone's having in like opinion pages or like, I don't know, in, in, in the Biden diners of America where they're discussing this avidly. <laughs>
4: I actually want to like use this idea of resenting your high school classmates who got into good colleges, which like is definitely a thing that I I had not realized before a few days ago and I just kind of started hearing about it from, from peers, just how many people I knew had stories of, yeah, and then everybody stopped talking to me because I got into college. And it's just, it says a lot, even... You know, not to like minimize the ways in which affirmative action in particular is used to perpetuate racist abuse, Um, but there's a whole moral economy that goes into this because you've told like generations of high achieving, upper middle class high school students that their very best shot for success in life is to get into the best school possible at the same time that those schools have become so absurdly selective that literally everyone involved in the process acknowledges that you could, instead of accepting the top X students, you know, take those out of the pool and then select the next X students, and you would have basically no difference in the, you know, merits of your class. So this scarcity that is emerging combined with the sheer import that is put for people who are arguably among the people who are least in need of having a fancy diploma to like smooth their path in later life, but are the ones who are most, who are spending years of their lives prior to college admissions with that as their supreme goal, produces a lot of interpersonal animus. And I think that like a lot of the, a lot of the kind of low level resentment of affirmative action comes from people who are being placed in this scarcity economy and who have a very obvious target to blame because they may not know a lot about the college admissions process, but they know that affirmative action is a thing that I think focuses this thing that's really harmful for a lot of reasons. And it's going to be interesting to see if the Supreme Court rules the way we all think it's probably going to rule, what happens to that resentment and whether there's another villain that gets identified easily among all the people whose kids don't get in.
3: On that happy note, we're going to take our first break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to dig into sort of where things go from here and and what can be done to sort of improve representation and integration at institutions like this if the Supreme Court says that affirmative action is off the table. So stay with us.
5: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital-I informed— It can help define and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burrow's furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds.
3: Okay. So, in thinking about what comes next, it seems like the the discussion always goes to uh, what's sometimes called class based affirmative action or sort of attempts to replace racial preferences with income preferences. Rick Kallenberg at the Century Foundation, this has been his jam for years. Cheryl Cashin, who's a law professor at Georgetown, has an interesting book called Place Not Race. Uh, that's specifically looking at uh, sort of trying to boost representation for poor neighborhoods, black and white, uh, but knowing that given the structure of racial discrimination in the United States, that would disproportionately increase representation in uh, in elite spaces for black students. Um, Kallenberg's really insistent that he thinks you can get as much racial diversity out of this as uh, a normal race-based affirmative action system. I'm not sure i buy that, and it seems like it depends a lot on the, me- the exact mechanism you use, but I'm curious for, for how you two think about sort of class-based affirmative action as a next step.
4: I mean, the thing that occurs to me first is that class-based affirmative action is going to be really, really hard to implement. Socioeconomic status-based affirmative action is going to be slightly easier, and income-based is going to be easiest of all. And like, that's not how class has ever worked. Not only is this replacing a somewhat gameable system of like, if you're an ethnic minority, even if that hasn't been an important part of your life, you talk about it in your admissions essay so that you can like get those sweet, sweet bonus points like and in, into an extremely gameable system regarding the tax code, which is exactly what the super rich are very good at gaming already. Uh, in terms of where do you hide your income in the years before you file your, you know your FAFsa and your admit, and your application so that it looks like you're part of the deserving poor. But even more broadly than that, I think it's really worth noting that when we talk about the benefits of an elite education, we're, we're really not talking about you're gonna make more money. It is about like you are going to be able to choose what you do with the rest of your life and succeed in whatever, you know, succeed in whatever path you go into because your diploma will open doors for you. You'll have an alumni network. You'll learn the soft skills of being a member of the upper class, essentially. And that's something that the people who need to know the most may not be the lowest income people. There they may very well be a lot of like first and second generation college students whose parents made enough money that they might be priced out of that, but who haven't necessarily you know, who are the only, you know, the only smart kid they know in Montana or something ridiculous like that, where they might not, where they would be the beneficiaries of a truly class-based affirmative action, but wouldn't benefit from a pure income-based.
2: I think the economic affirmative action seems important to me, not just from the perspective of you can get you can get a more racially diverse body in as an end runaround, but also just I think it's like purely actually important. I think that like one of the things that I'm not sure it's talked about enough is that there's there are a lot of benefits to diversity, like both from like uh, ideological standpoint, also from like a racial standpoint and from like a class based standpoint. And the way that I conceive of like the value, given that like we live in a world where we are drawing a lot of our elite from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, places like that, like there's a lot of value to thinking about how we want to construct these spaces. So there's evidence, for instance, that when people are randomly assigned a black roommate, they espouse more racially liberal views later on, have more diverse friendships later on, where there's evidence that, you know, affirmative action, which has led to an increased amount of black doctors, and that people like black doctors reduce the black-white male gap in like cardiovascular mortality by like 20%. So like, there's a lot of these benefits that like matter a lot that are outside of like these dessert claims we're talking about. And I think that that's obviously would be true also for people from different class backgrounds. And it seems that that would be good. I think I agree with you, Dylan, that there's like going to be likely a smaller number of black and Latino students and native students coming in, but also that like a lot of these admissions officers are probably pretty progressive. And like, I would imagine they that even if they're not doing it explicitly, they're going to put their thumbs on the scale anyway for for black and Latino students in some ways. So that seems important to me. Um, one of the other things I think about that's interesting is uh, this is kind of like the common one people talk about is like in Texas, for instance, the the system that they have is that they take the top ten percent of your high school gets in admission to the University of Texas school system, and so. One of the things, and uh, that I think is really interesting from this, is that what ends up happening, according to the study by Julie Berry, Cullen, Mark Long, and Randall Reback, is that people try to essentially desegregate their high schools because they want to get into the "quote unquote" easier schools, which. For me, as a person who thinks that, like, desegregation <laughs> is one of the biggest, most important things, feels like the biggest win we could possibly get. So if at the end of this, what we're getting is a bunch of white people voluntarily moving to poorer school districts, then, I mean, that's got to be a lot better than whatever the hell Harvard's doing right now.
3: The X present systems seem like a, a good solution for for state university systems. And the vast majority of people who go to college either go to non-selective schools, which aren't implicated in any of this. Or to public universities. And so that seems like it, it, it would account for a lot of people. I'm curious where that leaves places, uh, sort of elite institutions, which represent a small share of enrollment, uh, elite private institutions, that is, but as we've been saying, have an outsized role in society. Like if it's important to be producing black doctors to improve health outcomes among black patients. Like a disproportionate share of them are going to come from not even just Harvard, but but sort of any selective private university—Notre Dame, Vanderbilt, uh, Fordham—and anything. And they can't just let in the top X percent of all of the schools in their state. Uh, they have they have different enrollment sizes. They don't have the same relationship with the state. And so, what do they do? I haven't seen a proposal that does this specifically, but. Raj Teddy and his team at Harvard have done a lot of work showing that like at the very, very local level, like down to the census tracker neighborhood, you see sort of different kinds of exposure to deprivation and the super certain neighborhoods have less like income mobility than others. Um, This gets into things William Julius Wilson was saying and the truly disadvantaged like nearly 40 years ago. And I wonder if it would be possible to sort of craft a system where if you're in the bottom 10% 10% of census tracts in the United States by poverty level, like you get a special dispensation or, or some kind of uh, add-on to your, your application based on living in a his- historically disadvantaged community. Since, as, as Dar was saying, class is not just sort of point-in-time income, it's a, a broader relationship. And that seems like the kind of thing that might be able to economically integrate private institutions. Now the question is, do they want to be economically integrated? And the answer might be no.
2: Yeah, I I think it's also like kind of building off what you're you're saying at the end there, Dylan. Is just like it's important to kind of like target here, like what happens when affirmative action goes away like there's evidence of this from a study that looked at california when it got rid of affirmative action and essentially what you get is that a bunch of black and hispanic students drop out of like the uc level schools and have to and go to the cal state ones and then obviously there's like a trickle down effects which end up happening pushing out black and uh, hispanic students from those schools into like um, lower tier universities as well and then when you think about then the benefits of these schools there's research showing that um, for black and hispanic students and for students that come from less ed educated families, which, you know, would capture a lot of the class elements that we're talking about here. Um, The returns of college selectivity remain really large. But for students that or high socioeconomic status, there's like very little difference if you are a rich person who went to a good high school and then you go to like Harvard or you go to Brandeis or you go to or you go to uh, Bowdoin or, or, you know, William & Mary where I went. Like, you know, life life is going to turn out like pretty fine for you there. But I think that also gets at like this core question here of like, I think some people don't think that there is some uh, some benefit to attending uh, these really uh, elite institutions outside of like maybe the economic benefits that you could get. But like to be like pretty frank here. Like people like want to go to Harvard Yale and Princeton not just because of like oh I think that like the returns to my income are going to be really high but because there's like something like nice about going to those schools. Like people like like the prestige that comes along with it, but also like there's some like educational benefits. Like some of the best researchers in the world are attending these institutions, and there's not a great opportunity that you are able to know them well, but there is more opportunity than if you were not at those schools. And so there's a bunch of stuff here that like is not going to be observed in a lot of these studies that is not going to be observed in your income that's not going to be observed in whether or not you get to go to a good law school or a grad school after that um, that is still going to matter a lot to people that I think doesn't show up in a lot of these studies and so I think it's like probably would be pretty disingenuous to claim that there's like not some loss actually occurring to students who don't get to attend these universities Um, but I think the question here is then just like as a society especially places like Harvard Yale and Princeton are private but like they get tax advantage endowments and like Tax-advantaged endowments like Harvard and Yale are getting a public benefit from U.S. taxpayers. And so, like, the question is, like, how, when we're balancing all these interests, we care about having a diverse elite body because of uh, the benefits to, you know, well, I do. I care about it because of, like, mm-hmm. liberal <laughs> uh, uh, intuitions around race and also because of the creativity and research that we sh- see that shows that diverse groups have more creative ideas. And also because uh, we have a lot of evidence that when you have diversity in, in an elite population, that ends up having trickle-down effects when you see, you know, for instance, all the research around when Obama became president, people thinking that they could become uh, and run for office. You see increased numbers of black and brown people running for office. And of course, there's tons of evidence that when people who have the same experiences as voters who are disadvantaged run for office, that ends up leading to outcomes that benefit those groups. And obviously, those things are are really hard to suss out, and also, if you were to ask the first question and primary question of like, how best do we help Black and Latino uh, Americans, the answer would not be this weird end run around where we try to make Harvard more diverse. It would be, of course, zoning deregulation. But <laughs> um, <laughs> obviously, uh, you know. But but given that what we're talking about specifically here is is uh, a s- relatively static world and one in which the one change we're going to observe is fewer Black and Latino students and Native students at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton and places like that, like that seems like an objectively worse world even though the facts of the matter seem pretty clear that they're discriminating against Asian Americans.
4: I do think that there's that there are a couple of avenues here that like I know Dylan and Jerusalem have thought about and probably endorse but like it's not like the only way to tinker with the equities involved in admitting college student classes or to tinker with proportions. If we have two problems, one of which is that there is a big benefit to going to an elite school for people who are not already in well, like who are, who are not already members of an elite class, um, but that they may not have the resources to compete with members of the elite class for those slots. And the other problem is this kind of outsized resentment among the very people who need the college education least when they don't get into elite schools and other people do. It seems like one way to solve both of those problems is to radically increase university admission, like admission numbers, just like expand the hell out of Harvard and Yale and Stanford, et cetera. And it's not obvious that given just how ludicrously selective they are right now, that this would be a big problem for a student body. It's not at all obvious that they would be compromising on academic quality of their professors given how bananas the academic job market is and to the extent that it would make a diploma worth less, that might not be the end of the world on the margin if what that means is that you don't have 17 year olds like you know losing their sense of self-worth because they didn't get into Princeton like that seems like a problem and it does seem like, Elite schools have such outsized cultural cachet that you're not going to be doing a real, like, you're not going to be doing serious damage to the ability of you know, a first generation college student with a Harvard diploma to be able to open any doors she chooses after having the Harvard diploma. But it does seem that you're going to allow many more people to hold that diploma and try to open those doors. And so that's, I think, you know, where things might, might end up in a world where universities weren't more keen on using the endowment to make more money than on pouring it back into the school.
3: We're going to take our second break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about another paper on higher education, uh, but specifically on how it can help you live longer. So stay with us.
0: Beloved brands know customer relationships are everything. That's why over 130,000 trust Clavio to power smarter digital relationships across their websites, emails, SMS, and reviews. And now... There's Clavio AI, your guide to smarter insights, decisions, work, and results. Brands like Everyman Jack trust Clavio AI to personalize product recommendations that keep customers coming back. Discover Clavio AI at klaviyo.com box. That's K L-A-V-I-Y-O.com backslash box.
1: Support for the show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alternatives including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at sofi.com slash vox. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus. And we're back. This week's white paper
3: is by Jason Fletcher and Hamid Naganam Biyambari and is titled The Effects of Education on Mortality, Evidence Using College Expansions. Basically, they try to estimate how much longer college causes a person to live. And you can't figure that out just by comparing how long college graduates and non-graduates live because there are other differences between them. College grads tend to come from richer families, for instance, and so they might just be healthier because they're richer. So they exploit the fact that people become more likely to go to college when one opens nearby them, and then they see how long people spurred to go to college by those expansions live. And they live a lot longer. People spurred to go to college by one opening up nearby them uh, live 1 to 1.6 years longer than if they didn't. I have some thoughts on this, but uh, Jerusalem, Dara, what did you make of it?
2: Well, originally I assumed that there was like some migration thing going on here that like college is opening up and then a bunch of people were like moving to the college area who were like higher SES. And, you know, whether they're like going to work at the college university because they're like professors or something or like the college town itself becomes more of like a little, you know, booming, you know, mini metropolis. and more walkable college town. So it's attracting kind of more liberal people. They don't like fully like – they say that they're trying to control for it. And as someone who only put myself through one year of econometrics, I can't evaluate whether or not that's true. But it seems like they're trying to control for um, whether or not uh, it's a migration effect. They do some work there uh, to go against it. So I thought that was interesting that they were able to deal with that um, in this working paper. And I'm interested to see how it, it plays out later. But I also think that the thing that was important For this one is that the the effect is being driven by four-year colleges. They don't see the same kinds of things happening with community colleges um, at all, which indicates – I'm not sure what about community colleges because you would think that um, what is going on here is that when you attend university, you end up getting a job that is, you know, maybe it's, oh, you're more likely to have health insurance and that's why you're becoming healthier and living longer, or you just have like higher income and people with more money are able to live longer. Um, but, you know, you would think that there would be a smaller mediated effect for community colleges as well. So I'm not, I'm not sure if you guys had thoughts there.
4: Yeah, I also absolutely keyed in on the four year colleges thing, both because of the implied absence of community colleges and because of the implications of that for the some college uh, cohort, which we talked about in the student debt episode, the number of people who, you know, start but do not get a a diploma from college. And like, if the benefit of college is just that you're, you know, you're continuing to improve yourself and gaining new skills, and once you hit a, a level in the job market, where you're happy with yourself, you can drop out of college, no harm, no foul, then you would see very different results from this study. Um, And so it both, I think, speaks to the added benefit of like the diploma over just attending school for a certain number of semesters, but also to the particular benefits of a four-year college and that, that being a thing that a lot of students today are like going for at the outset of their college career, but do not necessarily make it to the finish line of.
3: I shared some of Jerusalem's concerns about the instrument here. I, I understand that this is a widely used instrument and, and these are good, careful researchers. But like the decision to open a college is like a significant policy decision also. And it seems like it might be at least somewhat responsive to demand for new colleges or otherwise sort of endogenous to the conditions there. Um, which makes me wonder about how useful it is as sort of a, a fake experiment. But I guess what what this leads me wondering is is what the mechanisms are, and there we've we've gone through a few of them, but it seems like some of it might just be that you earn more money because you you went to college. But I could also imagine, especially in rural areas, there are farming communities, it might make you less likely to do farm work or other like strenuous manual labor that is bad for your life expectancy. Um, so I'd love to see sort of more research going forward on those those kinds of reasons why this might translate into increased life expectancy.
2: And to just bring us around to our earlier conversation, um, Jason Fletcher, actually the same researcher who, who's on this paper, uh, did another paper on the effects of diversity on life outcomes. And he also found that a more diverse colleges actually led to uh, longer lifespans. Um, I'm not sure. If I believe that,
4: (laughs) thought I would throw it in there. That is a hell. I mean, like, is it is it too late for to get Jason Fletcher to file an amicus brief with the Supreme Court? Like, killing (laughs) affirmative action will will kill American souls. Oh my God, not their souls. Uh, The other thing that I thought will kill American humans themselves. Yeah, I I haven't
3: (laughs) seen a a NBER study with souls as the dependent variable, but you know that's that's also a new research agenda we could explore.
2: One thing, though, that was uh, buried in there is that the mortality gains for two year colleges are larger for blacks than for other races, which, again, kind of like gives me like interesting insight, I guess, into like what the mechanisms here are. If, If it is just that maybe like white Americans are already closer to having access to like good jobs than black Americans are. There's like a larger jump to be had at community colleges. So there's less of like the gains that you'd get for white Americans um, attending community colleges. I also really buy Dylan, your explanation that just like you're less likely to do manual labor. I think that's probably yeah. true between like two-year community colleges and four-year colleges as well. Whereas two-year colleges might be preparing you to being a, for being a plumber or for being a like, you know, electrician or something like that, where like you still make a lot of money, you make a really good living. But like that's still like manual labor. You have to like go a lot. It's a lot of stress it could be uh, dealing with people. It's also like often running your own business. That's like really stressful um, versus like a four-year college, which may just prepare you for a more chill nine to five white collar work environment, which while it comes with its its degree of, of frustrations, I can promise you is not, is not anywhere near the kind of difficulty of, of these other jobs.
4: Yeah. Although I mean, like while there is a lot of both physical and emotional stress associated with, you know, lower paying service work, There is a big difference between the service sector jobs that people with community college equivalent education would be getting and working on the farm in terms of like life expectancy. So I'm not as sure. I feel like we wouldn't if it was really just about the manual labor thing, you wouldn't necessarily see that because there would also be a benefit to like the pink collar workforce.
3: Yeah, no, and I I also just liked reading this paper because it's uh it's something that literally happened in my family. I I don't know if it was tied to a a specific school opening in North Dakota, but my dad's side of the family and his dad's side of the family all came from a farm in North Dakota. My great-great-grandfather was like a very manually intensive farmer and then his son Managed to go to college and escaped by becoming a bureaucrat for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. <laughs> See, that's the dream. Like, that is truly the dream, is that from from plowshares into uh, word processors is what we always say <laughs> here on The leads.
4: <laughs> With that uplifting story of intergenerational <laughs> mobility.
3: Thank you so much to Jerusalem and Dara for, for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I am your host, Dylan Matthews. If you enjoy newsletters and don't feel like you've got enough of them, you should sign up for ours. Uh, go sign up at Vox.com weedsletter We will be back in your feed this Friday with a conversation about the Olympics with political scientist Victor Cha. The games have always been political, and uh, that's more evident than ever as they're being held in China. And uh, I'm excited to dig into that with Victor. We'll see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.
1: Support for the show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alternatives including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com Vox. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus.